Hello, and welcome to episode 9 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. My name is Andrew Wallace and I am the director of the museum. I'd like to start by saying a sincere thank you to all those who have bothered to send in emails. Modesty precludes me sharing the content of the emails. Suffice to say, I'm delighted that we seem to be hitting the target with the content and you seem to be coping with the sound of my voice, which I have to say leaves me cringing in the corner. One of the many downsides to lockdown is that you either get me talking or one of my two Jack Russell dogs, so I fear I'm the only show in town at the moment. Onwards and upwards. This week I'm taking another book off the shelf and sharing the words of another eminent guardsman. This time it is a man who joined the Scots Guards in 1942, when the training depot was still in Caterham. He passed off the square as a guardsman, but over the next 44 years he went on to achieve the rank of full general and to hold some of the most prestigious commands in the army. This week we are looking at General Sir Michael Gow. Born on the 3rd of June 1924 in Sheffield in Yorkshire, Michael Gow was educated at Winchester College. Although his family lacked a military background, during the Second World War he volunteered for the British Army and enlisted into the Scots Guards, in the proud and lofty rank of Guardsman. However, he was soon commissioned as a second lieutenant on the 5th of June 1943, shortly after his 19th birthday. He served with the regiment's 3rd Tank Battalion, then part of the 6th Tank Brigade, serving in the campaigns in northwest Europe, including the Battle of Normandy. After being injured in Belgium in October that year and taking six months to recover, he was one of the first British officers into the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in April 1945, shortly before VE Day. Unlike many others, he remained in the army after the war and became commanding officer of the 2nd Battalion Scots Guards in 1964, later commanding the 4th Guards Brigade in 1967 before becoming a brigadier on the general staff of the headquarters of the British Army of the Rhine in 1971. He was appointed General Officer Commanding 4th Division in 1973 and he was then made Director of Army Training in 1975. General Gow then moved to be General Officer Commanding Scotland and Governor of Edinburgh Castle in 1979 and Commander-in-Chief of the British Army of the Rhine and the Northern Army Group in 1980. He was appointed Commandant of the Royal College of Defence Studies in 1984 and retired from the Army in 1986. He was Aide-de-Camp General to the Queen from 1981 to 1984 and he sadly passed away on the 26th of March 2013, just short of his 89th birthday. He was a dedicated and loving father to four daughters and a son, and I'm delighted to say that his son, Roddy, is no stranger to the Guards Museum, and so I thought it would be nice to talk with Roddy about his father before I launch into his book, which is entitled General Reflections, A Military Man at Large. So please welcome our first ever guest on the podcast, none other than Roddy Gow, OBE. Roddy, welcome. Thank you, Andrew, and I'm delighted to be talking with you on this podcast uh, about the Guards Museum, with which I feel I've been fairly intimately involved since my father, the late General Sir Michael Gow, um, part of the group that was raising the, the money to get the museum going uh, in its home now at, uh, at Wellington Barracks. And he was involved, I know, in setting it up in the late 1970s. And I should add that he was 
devoted uh, Scots Guardsman. He joined Young as a Guardsman uh, in World War II and rose during his career to become a full general or four-star general, as the Americans would call it, before retiring. And he um, served in a remarkable number of places and was one of the first Allied officers into Belsen, uh, something which left a marked impression on him for the whole of his life. But he was, above all, I can imagine. You know, a proud Scots Guardsman and who, who always thought that, that it was so important that young Guardsmen, in particular, joining the Brigade of Guards, should have an, an understanding of the history and of the achievements of, of their forebears to fully understand what was expected of them uh, while serving. I know he was famous for the fact that uh, he had the common touch he could uh, deal with junior ranks as well as uh, heads of state in exactly the same sort of way. And he was famous within the regiment for that. Yes, he was one of those remarkable people who, you know, when he's talking to you, he is talking to you, not looking over your shoulder to see who else he might speak to. And um, I remember that uh, Brigadier James Ellery was saying once that when my father went to carry out some sort of inspection in the field, he he singled out a rather nervous-looking young guardsman and um, who was, I think, standing in the bottom of a trench and was able to engage with him and say that he remembered clearly when he'd been in a similar position when some bigwig was coming around to inspect and that um, he could identify with this, this young man and it made a huge impression on him. Because it was surprising for me to find out that he actually joined up as a guardsman as opposed to going straight into Santos. That's correct. That's absolutely right. And, of course... I think he then went off to do officer's training um, in, in the north of England somewhere. Eaton Hall, was that? I think it was. Which is where, Correct. Yeah, which is yeah. where he went to train. And, uh, and later ended up in a, the very famous 3rd um, Battalion Scots Guards who were in tanks. And as a young officer, um, he joined them actually after the, uh, the D-Day landing. But amongst the others in that battalion, extraordinary, were the future Archbishop of Canterbury, Bob Bruncey. Willie Whitelaw, Chips McLean, and uh, a, a number of other remarkable people who, who all served together in that battalion. And they were guardsmen in tanks. A very high-caliber intake. It, a high-caliber intake, and of course some of them were rather tall. And so I don't know what they did about keeping their heads down in the top of a tank. I, I think I met him only once when uh, I was in... David Horn's office, my predecessor's office, um, and he came in to hand us the new version of his splendid book about trooping the colour. And I have the impression that he was a big man, wasn't he? Yeah, he was six foot four before, in, I suppose, with age, people start to shrink, but he was a big man, yeah. A, a very commanding presence, I know that. Well as, they, well, as they say in America, he was like a sort of a guards general out of central casting. He was tall and with a moustache. And a, a, and a significant presence. But he was not at all pompous. He used to laugh at himself and others. And, and it was said of him, the great thing about Mike Gow is he got right to the top of the British Army without being an obnoxious and unpleasant person. There's nothing I can say to that other than I, I, I heartily agree, because uh, certainly my predecessor, uh, David Horne, had the highest regard for him. He hung on your father's every word. I know that. Well, his his sense of humour was was sort of epitomised by the two books he wrote, 
uh, general recollections and jottings from a general's notebook. And whilst perhaps some of his contemporaries produced, as he could certainly have done, detailed sort of autobiographies of what they'd done, uh, I suppose campaign by campaign, and he he preferred to tell the amusing stories of him and his family on his way up, and the all the different fun and experiences we had together. Reading the book, I was uh, impressed with the number of stories that were against himself, if if you know what I mean. Um, he he wasn't above taking the rise out of himself, so uh, that's always no. a pleasing and self-effacing thing to uh, to see. Absolutely. Well, he was, as I say, not pompous, and he would prick the balloon of pomposity that when he sometimes encountered it in other people. <laughs> I wish I had copies of both of those books in front of me to dip into them and quote from, but I I haven't because I'm in Scotland as we speak, and they're in a packing box somewhere, uh, not yet having caught up with me. Well, rest assured, I have a fruit basket full of vignette little stories from uh, your father's book, which I will be sharing uh, with the listeners uh, as soon as I finish speaking. Now, I know him best of all for his magnum opus on the ceremony of Trooping the Colour. It obviously meant a great deal to him. It did. He was he was very interested by the, the history of the Trooping the Colour, how it came about, how it evolved. There were a couple of things I mentioned. I remember that he mentioned to me. One of them was that there was a, when there were talks about cuts in the um, household division, he, with others, I think, made a proposal that there should be a a battalion raised of Commonwealth troops, and it would be the Commonwealth battalion of foot guards with representation from the major countries of the Commonwealth, such as Canada and Australia, and else and India and elsewhere, and. Um, this actually did get some traction, but in the end was was not adopted, which I think was a pity uh, because he um, it, it was rather a good idea, and that never really took off. Well, and he used to be tracked. Now, after he'd retired and moved up to to Edinburgh um, and was living in Anne Street, and there were there were great discussions about um, diversity within the uh, within the armed forces, both by ethnicity and gender, and he was tracked down a reporter from one of the newspapers who I think was expecting to have a conversation with a old-fashioned, rather pompous general. And uh, the question was, well, General Guy, what do you think of gays in the military? To which, perhaps just stroking his moustache briefly with a smile on his face, he said, well, I have no objection, really. It gives a new meaning to that well-known First World War song, Kiss Me Goodnight, Sergeant Major. <laughs> Whereupon the reporter <laughs> withdrew, having got an amusing story, but not what he was looking for. No, I can imagine. Wonderful stuff. Yeah. Now, you yourself served. I did. I served in the Scots Guards for 12 years. I actually had a place at Trinity College, Cambridge. And I, I joined the regiment in when I was commissioned in 66. And during the university vacations, when others were going off to do the Vendange or whatever in uh, France... I would be with the battalion. In fact, I deployed with them for a period of time in Libya when we were doing our armoured training. Um, and I remember that very vividly. And I also, during other vacations, found myself on the Falls Road um, in Belfast in the late 60s. Right. So I, I started off I mean, I started off as a young officer knowing virtually nothing. And uh, I then went on subsequently to be um, the... ADC to uh, the late General Vernon Erskine Crum, the father of Douglas Erskine Crum, 
when he was the general officer commanding Northern Ireland and sadly died uh, uh, when he, whilst I was there with him. Um, he had a, a heart attack and died in the Royal Victoria Hospital, guarded by the military police because the IRA were out to get him. Uh, I was later signals officer, adjutant of the 1st Battalion of Scots Guards, and then had a job at NATO headquarters uh, working as a staff officer with Admiral Lord Hill Norton, chairman of the military committee, before my last job, which was as an instructor at Sandhurst, uh, after which I left as a captain on the basis that someone might think that I had commanded a frigate, which sounded rather more dashing. <laughs> now, your path and my path crossed inside the museum, and you have been a stalwart supporter and a good friend to the museum uh, over the last uh, several years. Uh, can you give us your views on the museum and its future as you see it? I can. Uh, I, I will, for, 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 if it's helpful. Um, I would also add that I'm not only the son of a Scots Guardsman and a Scots Guardsman myself, but my second son, Neil, served in the regiment and was twice in uh, in Afghanistan. Of course, yes. I, my brother-in-law was the late Sir Malcolm Ross, also Scots Guards. Martin Snow uh, was a, was in the Scots Guards, my cousin, and he was a captain of Invalids uh, at the, the Royal Hospital Chelsea. Another cousin of mine, the son of Bruff Scott, the famous racing uh, correspondent, Jim Scott, uh, served in the regiment and was in the SAS. So there are lots of connections. I mention that because... For me, the Guards Museum for us was a sort of a close family connection. And I also subscribe very strongly to the view that my father had, which was that people on joining the Brigade of Guards um, would benefit hugely from seeing where they stood in that sort of golden thread or the invisible chain, I think my father referred to it as, yes. the links of which are so strong and which bind people together. And so for a, a fairly newly enlisted guardsman to see what happened at Hougmont in the display there and to discover things about the Boer War and indeed before that, and then in the First and Second World Wars, was a, a very strong visual reminder of the heritage of which he was becoming a part and the standards which... He heard about being expected to maintain, but he saw a visible example of in the uh, in the displays in the museum. And I think, as as the Prince of Wales has said very accurately, the, these are ways in which young and older soldiers um, are reminded of the the heritage that they are part of, and which they are during the time of their service custodians for and. The, with the erosion of standards in, in society, uh, sadly, um, uh, once things of quality um, slip and, 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 and are closed down, then they're lost forever. And why I think all regimental museums, and of course particularly the Guards Museum of which we speak, are so extraordinarily important, uh, is not only for the internal consumption of those who are serving, but also, of course, for tourists and visitors who come and get get a much clearer impression, or should do, of what the Brigade of Guards, in this case, stands for. So with all the cuts and with all the difficulties that exist in, in life, somehow it's, it's so important for the spirit of the regiments represented there, the, the five regiments of foot guards, um, 
to to maintain these memories that um, we need to guard them with with great care and ensure that we reach out to get the necessary funding um, to ensure that they uh, they continue to exist. Well, you've been instrumental in in helping us uh, with the latter part of that uh, in in finding funding and. Um, you get the top brick off the roof as far as I'm concerned. So uh, God bless you for that. Um, my closing uh, comment would be, uh, and it's out of the the mouth of a, a company sergeant major who's in the Gars Museum. He he summed it up for me uh, when he said, these young men, he he brought a, a young group into the museum, young group of Garsmen. He said, these guys don't join for what the regiment's going to do tomorrow. They join for what the regiment did yesterday and to measure themselves against the performance of those who have gone before. And I thought, yeah. well, that just about sums mm -hmm. it up, really. So uh, the museum does have a place, uh, as you and I are both um, uh, very clear on that subject, that we have a, a place in the training of the, uh, the modern guardsmen. Well, Andrew, yes, and I think it's also, I mean, I talked about my experience in the Scots Guards, Across the five regiments of foot guards, there are innumerable examples of sons of fathers or cousins or grandsons of grandfathers who who have served in the same regiment. And there are some in the museum itself examples of multiple relations who, who have served together or, or across different generations. And the museum, the Guards Museum, serves to remind people of the... Um, the, the, the continuing um, legacy and the connectivity between different generations. So going back to what that retired company sergeant major said, I totally agree with that. And it's the it's that spirit of uh, of, of the Guards regiments that is maintained through what you do so wonderfully at the museum and the way in which you reach out to people not in the armed forces who can hold events there and use it for for entertaining and the like that helps preserve and strengthen the museum and there's a great deal more we we still need to do as as we all know in these difficult times well roddy bless you for your time thank you so much for sharing your recollections of your father with us um, and i look forward to the next time when you and i can lift a glass together in post lockdown mode so let's turn our attention to general gow's book it's a collection of reminiscences of his time in uniform starting right at the beginning at the Gars Depot in Caterham during his basic training. He writes, By all accounts, my personality should have been permanently scarred. It all started when I was about 13 and was taken by my mother to meet a friend of hers in Edinburgh, where we lived. I am so very pleased to see you, the friend said to me. I hear that you are at school at Winchester, so you must be very clever. Whereupon my mother replied, Oh no, this isn't the clever one. You mean his brother. This one didn't get a scholarship. I was cut to the quick and later told her that she had delivered a serious blow to my ego that I should never forget what she had said, and I never have. When I went to the Gars Depot Caterham, alias Little Sparta, as 2701193 Recruit Gow J Scots Guards, I was one of the lowest of the low or so we were told on arrival. The shock of the system was severe. 
On the very first morning, the crew standing at the next basin to mine in the ablutions attempted suicide with the cutthroat razor, which was an indicator to me that the place probably wasn't in the holiday camp category. An early and, of course, compulsory visit to the barber shop, however, temporarily reassured me. Just sit here, please. And how would we like our haircut this morning? A little trim at the back, and I, I think perhaps if you agree, it might be thinned a trifle. Oh, yes, please, I replied unwittingly. What do you mean, yes, please, you horrible, scruffy individual? You'll sit to attention and call me corporal. You're not in the male chorus of the Folly Berger now, he shouted, and out came the electric clippers with predictable results. And later on on the barrack square, Call yourself a Scots Guardsman. If His Majesty the King could see you, he'd abdicate. Do you know what you look like? I'll tell you. You look to me very much like a bag of manure tied up with pink string. Unless one maintained a sense of humour in life, and especially at the guard's depot, one was doomed. He had early success in that he managed to make the rank of Lance Corporal, but as the saying goes, pride cometh before the fall. He writes, I was immensely proud when I successfully passed out from the depot at the end of the recruits course, and even more relieved actually to be allowed out of the gate past the watchful and critical eye of the sergeant of the guard. Several times in the past, I had been turned back for some error of dress or general deportment. His Majesty's guards don't stand about on street corners with tuppenny bags of crisps in their hand, chatting up the bird, you know, and that's just what you look like to me, as if you might be going to do, I was told on one attempt. This time, however, I made it and felt ten foot tall, with the Scots guards flash on the shoulder of my battle dress jacket for all the world to see and admire. One Wednesday at Purbright, where the next stage of our training took place, I was marched before the commanding officer and appointed Lance Corporal. At once I went to the tailor's shop and had the stripes sewn onto my sleeve. I could almost feel them burning into my flesh. To be able to enter the corporal's mess was a privilege far greater to me than being elected in later life to a grand and select London club. Pride, however, comes before a fall. The following day I was put in charge of a fatigue party to clean out the naffy, or canteen. It was ten hundred hours. The place was inspected at ten-thirty and found to be in bad order, and at twelve o'clock I appeared before the commanding officer and was demoted for inefficiency. I've often wondered what might have happened to me if the naffy had been found to be in good order. I might have ended up as the regimental sergeant major, alias God. He was destined not to go down that path. Instead, he was selected to train to be an officer and was duly dispatched to Sandhurst, whereupon he was commissioned into the 2nd Battalion of the Scots Guards. Eventually, having achieved the rank of Major, he found himself working in the regimental headquarters in Wellington Barracks, where he made the cardinal error of having a good idea. He writes, I thought it would be a good idea, and certainly first-class publicity, and therefore a spur to recruiting, if a visit to Moscow by the band of the regiment and the pipes and drums could be arranged. A highly successful and lucrative tour had previously been made to the United States, but in this venture I could find no interest. I then happened to read in a newspaper that the Prime Minister, who was Macmillan at the time, was about to go to the Soviet Union, and on that agenda for his discussions with Khrushchev were, in inverted commas, cultural exchanges Without, as far as I can recall, any reference to anyone in higher authority, I wrote directly to the Prime Minister suggesting that when this item was reached he should propose a visit by the Scots Guards.
I later saw the War Office file, the very first letter of which was mine, and I've always regretted that, like some John le Carré character, I had not photographed the contents. Minutes flew back and forth between Number 10 and the War Office and the Foreign Office, culminating in one personally from the Prime Minister to the Secretary of State for War, whose reply was memorable, deserving a place on the wall of my personal restroom. It ended, Let us hope this is the last we ever hear of Major Gao and his crackpot ideas. On another occasion he found that senior NCOs can often have the last word on a given subject. He writes, Like most regiments in the British Army, the Scots Guards have an officer's dining club. Ours is called the Third Guards Club, for that is what we were called from 1712 until 1831. The club committee meets once a year in regimental headquarters under the President, who, at the time of which I write, was a veteran of the Boer War, Colonel the Earl of Stair, Knight of the Order of the Thistle. I was the ex officio secretary, and I wanted the meetings to proceed smoothly and amicably, so I told the superintending clerk that we would have a rehearsal. Now, I said, when I ring the bell, that is the signal for you to enter with the sherry. Let's try that out. I rang the bell, and in he came with the decanter and glasses, on a tin tray, which was illustrated by a lurid picture of cattle grazing on Ben McDoo or some other similar venue. For heaven's sake, I exclaimed, that won't do. Lord Stair will have a fit. Make sure there's a cloth on it when we do it for real. The committee gathered, business was in progress, and at the appropriate moment I rang the bell. In came the superintending clerk with the decanter and glasses, but to my horror, upon the tray there was a cloth on which, in large red capital letters, was the word LAVATORY. Michael Gow was eventually appointed to be regimental adjutant, and he describes a somewhat unfortunate incident which occurred shortly after he assumed the role. He writes, My predecessor as regimental adjutant was extremely keen. On handing over, not only did he brief me extensively on every aspect of the job, and listening to him it all sounded so complicated that I feared it would be beyond me, but he also left several tape recordings on which were further instructions and advice. Now, he said, there is one last thing which is very important, and he turned to a shallow cupboard on the wall behind his desk. This is so confidential that it must always be kept locked. And with great pride, he withdrew the contents. Down one side of a board were the names of every officer in the regiment, and along the top, a calendar by months for the next ten years. Against each name and running across the board were coloured markers, denoting what job each would be doing in the years ahead, and for how long. This is absolutely unique. No one else has got one of these or anything like it. It took about six months to work it all out, and it's complicated, though, after study, self-evident. I won't go through it now, but examine it with care later. And with that, he left. During the following days, I listened to his tapes, studied the files, and thought that, with luck, I might just get the hang of it all. There was, as I recalled, something of import that I had yet to look at. Ah, yes, the career planning board. I found the key and put it in the lock. But it jammed, and however gently I eased it to and fro, nothing happened. So I gave it a sharp tug. Off the wall fell the whole thing. 
crashing to the ground, bursting open and scattering the contents all over the carpet. So if there is any officer who thought or still thinks that his career has been a disappointment to him, perhaps he now knows why. I should add that, without applying any modern techniques and by using simple arithmetic, I worked out that if everyone senior to me got command of a battalion for two years, I would be 72 before it came to me. Probably best it got dropped on the carpet. Now anyone who has spent any time in or around the household division will know that the ceremonial silly season in the run-up to Trooping the Colour is a time of great consternation for foot guards officers, who by dint of their positions, are required to ride horses on the birthday parade. Thanks to the fact that these officers wear bearskin caps, anyone standing in the mall to watch these officers ride to Horse Guards Parade will be unable to see the abject terror in their eyes. These are decidedly pedestrian men, sitting atop feisty beasts that sense the driver is not as confident as he might be and that there might be some fun to be had at their expense. By this stage in his career, he was a lieutenant colonel commanding the streetliners. He writes, The troops lining the Mall and the approach road to Horse Guards Parade on the occasion of the Queen's Birthday Parade are commanded by a foot guards commanding officer, accompanied by his adjutant, both mounted. Their task is to ensure the proper deployment and alertness of the soldiers along the route, and once these are in position, the two officers wait outside Buckingham Palace for the Queen's procession to depart. After that, all they have to do is ride with dignity up the Mall to just short of Admiralty Arch and then join the back of the column when the ceremony is over. It might be deduced from this brief resume that there will be little scope for mishap, but how wrong one can be. When I was charged with this duty, my accompanying adjutant was a nervous rider, but I was able to buoy him up with a deceptive display of self-confidence. At what used to be called the rehearsal, for what is now called something different. To help him relax, I said, I tell you what, as we've got plenty of time to get up to the end, let's pop into St James's en route and get a cooling glass of something from the mess sergeant of the Queen's Guard. And this is what we did. We then went on our way, duly refreshed with no mishaps. The day of the parade itself started off badly. While I was waiting in the palace, an important and obviously knowledgeable warrant officer of the household cavalry said to me, Lucky I spotted that, Colonel. That curd chain is very badly fitted. Your charger won't like that one little bit after quite a short time. Make him very fidgety. We'll do something then, I replied. But just as that moment, out came the procession, and the opportunity had passed. We satisfactorily circumnavigated the Victoria Memorial and were proceeding up the Mall according to plan, when my horse suddenly stopped. What do you think's wrong? I stupidly asked my companion, who of course had no idea beyond suggesting, I think he remembers that last time we nipped into St James's at this point and he got a lump of sugar. We certainly could not do that now as the crowds barred the way, but nothing I could do persuade my steed to advance. I had, I thought, been told on the equitation course that the application of the spurs induced forward movement but all that happened was that we went backwards. The restiveness of which the warrant officer had warned me then became apparent, and this was transmitted to the adjutant and his charger. At this moment the spectators became involved, and there were shouts of, Ride em, cowboy! accompanied by other gratuitous remarks. All this seemed to go on for a long time, 
so long in fact that I thought we might still be there when the great procession marched back down the mall. Luckily I spotted a mounted policeman whom I was able to summon. Help us please, I can't think what's wrong with this horse. He won't move forward. Why is that? Oh, he wants to pass water sir, I was told. Well why doesn't he? Only does it on grass I expect. Some horses are funny like that. There is no grass in the middle of the mall, I replied. So we were then led across the pavement as the crowds made way and the call of nature was met and to the cheers of the spectators off we set again and successfully reached our destination on time. Now here we have another occasion where the regimental sergeant major works his magic. He writes, Both Christmas and Hogmanay are marked by festivities in the Scots Guards and a major feature has always been a function to which officers are invited to the sergeant's mess and at which a Christmas draw takes place. Do you know, I remarked to the regimental sergeant major, I've been attending these draws for more years than I can remember, and I've never drawn a prize. Well, sir, he said, there's always a first time. Come the evening, and the draw took place. Suddenly, the NCO in charge called out, Number 33, the commanding officer. Well done, sir. There you are, said the sergeant major. Miracles do happen. To which I replied, Yes, sergeant major, but this really is a miracle. I never bought a ticket. One of the prerequisites of being a senior officer is the ability to think on your feet. General Gow writes, I was on a long and exhausting lecture tour in the States. The last question put to me at the close of the final talk was this. What is your government's long-term policy for the future of the Malvinas? I pride myself that, quick as a flash, I came back with, Would you describe yourself as a religious man? Yes, he would. Don't think me inquisitive, but are you by any chance a Roman Catholic? Yes, he was. Right, I said. Last month my wife and I were in Rome and we visited the Vatican. We were given a private tour of the Pope's apartments. Just before we entered His Holiness's private library, I noticed on the wall in the passage a map of the world. I stopped, put on my spectacles and ran my eye down the Atlantic, stopping in a group of islands off the coast of South Argentina, and there, on the Pope's map, quite clearly, were the words Falkland Islands. Right, sir, said my questioner, I withdraw that question. I was lucky he wasn't a Buddhist. And here's a tale covering the politest way he was ever told to get a move on. We enjoyed a special relationship with the intelligence community of the United States, and I was involved in many visits to that country, one of which took me to Fort Huachuca, Arizona, the U.S. Army Intel School, and the visit was instructive and entertaining. I was given a four-star Stetson at a dinner in the Commandant's quarters, and towards the end of the farewell lunch in the club, I was handed a note by his pretty female aide, which read, A distinguished British general named Gao flew into Huachuca somehow, Though his humour was frightful, we found him delightful, but it's time to depart, right now. They say an army marches on its stomach, so the subject of army catering is an emotive one. General Gow writes, Food is, and always has been, for good or ill, a matter of importance in the army. It is referred to sometimes as scoff, after I deduce the famous French chef Monsieur Escoffier, 
who was sent out to the seat of war in the Crimea to improve the deplorable food being issued to the troops. At the periodical welfare meetings, which are held in regiments and battalions, attended by squadron or company representatives, messing is always discussed and any complaints noted. A famous Irish Guards quartermaster, Major Keatinge, was once presiding at one of these at Purbright when one of the representatives put up his hand. Yes? Sir, why can't we have butter on our bread at breakfast and not margarine? Are you a religious man? he was asked. Yes, sir. Well, stand up then and recite the Lord's Prayer. And the guardsman started off. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Stop! shouted the quartermaster. Did God say anything about butter? No, so sit down and shut up. Job done. On the subject of leadership, General Gow writes, General, later Field Marshal the Viscount Slim, was a very charismatic leader, and his addresses to the troops under his command were impressive. Before one offensive by his army in Burma, he addressed a battalion whose role would be crucial to the success of the operation. It is said he greatly stirred his audience. Indeed, one sergeant was so carried away that he shouted, Rely on us! We'll be right behind you, sir! You bloody well won't, replied Slim. I'll be a hundred miles behind you. And here we have another example of quick thinking. Unlike the Chinese army of Chairman Mao, the British have been keen, generally speaking, on displaying badges of rank, and it has often struck some as odd that those of a brigadier should be so ornate, a crown surmounted by three stars set in a triangle. Before the invention of Staybright badges, a considerable amount of polishing was required to maintain them in pristine condition. Once as a brigadier, I went to work with one of my stars missing, and this omission was pointed out to me by everyone I met, except for those who were so small they could see no higher than my chest. At length, exasperated, I said, I'm surprised that you don't know. Today is the anniversary of the Battle of Inkerman, in which the Scots Guards fought with distinction. The commanding officer was severely wounded in the right shoulder, but he carried on pluckily felling Russians with his sword arm, despite the agony he was enduring. The Prince Consort, Colonel of the Regiment, directed that this gallantry should never be forgotten, and decreed that on Inkerman Day, for all time, officers of the regiment would deliberately shed one star from their right shoulder. Ah, of course, said my questioner, I should have remembered. We were told all about it at Sandhurst, I do apologise. I naturally did not tell him that I had invented this tear-jerking tale at that very moment. Lastly, General Gow recounts a tale about a regimental museum, though, thankfully, not the Guards Museum. When I was commanding the army in Scotland, I invited a field marshal and his wife to stay and take the salute at the Edinburgh Tattoo. On arrival, he told me that he had been touring Scotland and had taken the opportunity of visiting the headquarters of some of the Scottish regiments. He was particularly interested in and knowledgeable about military museums and as a result had visited a number in my command. Very poor security in some of them, he remarked. I'm sorry about that. Anything special? Well, I'll give you an example. I saw in one museum a very valuable case of medals on the wall. It was very badly fixed. So do you know what I did? I'll tell you. When no one was looking, I turned my back on it, lifted off the wall, 
and hid it under my coat-tails. Where is it now? I inquired, picturing a worried curator, courts of inquiry and so on. It was, I admit, a little embarrassing, he replied. As I was saying goodbye to the regimental secretary of my staff, I'm afraid I dropped it. Well, that's about it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed hearing the readings from uh, General Gow's book, General Reflections, A Military Man at Large, and indeed hearing from his son, Roddy. If you've enjoyed the podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review as that helps us. If you wish to contribute to our work, please go to our website, www.theguardsmuseum.com and look for the Support Us button. All donations are gratefully received and faithfully applied. I have been Andrew Wallace and this has been Episode 9 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. So until next week, goodbye and God bless. Now, turn to your right and salute. Dismiss. Up, down and get away. Thank you.